Well, today we, uh, we're going to pick up where we were last week um, in, in the study of 1 Corinthians. We are working our way through the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. And we, we today have a passage in verses 10 to 16 of 1 Corinthians 7 uh, that's hard, I think, for two, for two reasons. One, there's, there's a part in here that's a little hard to comprehend, uh, even mentally, what it means. But then almost all of this text goes against the grain of how we would naturally think and how the world thinks. So it's a very hard passage to apply, especially um, if it's speaking into your area of life right now. Normally, uh, in our flesh, we would avoid a passage like this, right? It's kind of like those moments at Thanksgiving uh, where you're kind of walking on eggshells around certain topics you don't want to bring up. Uh, we would naturally want to do that, but we're going through the Bible. And what I love about the Bible... Um, it is never irrelevant. The Bible talks about reality, real tangible stuff, and doesn't allow us, if we're going to preach through the Bible, doesn't allow us to avoid hard topics. And today's topics are divorce and remarriage. And we all have tons of ideas and experiences and feelings towards all of this this morning. So we're going to look at what the Word says. Look at what 1 Corinthians says. And again, this is not a place here. This is not going to be a sermon of guilt and shame, but a, but a place of truth and safety this morning, of love in the Bible. So let's jump into it. If you have a Bible, open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 to 16. It's on page 955, 955 of those Bibles in front of you. Once you find that, would you please stand for the reading of the Word of God. Paul writes, To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, cause your word this morning to dwell in our hearts richly this morning. Spirit, help us. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, this passage overall, just from a big view without looking at the nitty-gritty problems, is communicating to married Christians that though it might be so much easier um, to quit on your marriage or divorce or separate when it gets hard or messy, the overall biblical principle is to stick it out. Because marriage is more than being about you. Now, trust me, we're going to get into the nuances of this. There's so many situations, I'm not going to be able to speak into all of them. Now, I'm not saying this is an easy text to apply, but Paul is addressing a church here in Corinth that has one foot outside of the door of marriage and one in, and they're not sure what to do, and they're looking for approval to leave. And Paul gives some pastoral help here. 
Now, there's a lot of difficulty uh, in talking about divorce and remarriage, and God has some strong commands, and also God has some strong grace. So our job as as Christians, our job as Bible students is to study this and put all the parts of the Bible together about marriage and divorce and remarriage and past relationships and guilt and shame. Put all these pieces together and figure out how it goes together, right? It's like putting together Ikea furniture. Got a lot of pieces. You kind of know what the end result's going to look like, but you got to figure out how to do it well, right? So I want to give you the main point, and then we're going to get into a lot of maybe the questions you have right now. All of a sudden, you might be wondering, why did I show up today? This is not what I want to hear about. Main point today is married Christian, your marriage belongs to the Lord, and your marriage blesses others, so stick it out. Married Christian, your marriage belongs to the Lord, and your marriage blesses others, so stick it out. Right? Marriage is never just about you, nor is it ever just about you, the couple. Marriage first belongs to the Lord, and marriage also impacts and influences and blesses others. Now, I think there are several audiences in the room right now. Right? I want to acknowledge a, a few of you. Right? You might be married, so this sermon will be maybe an encouragement to you to keep sticking it out if you are. Maybe to get a brighter perspective of what marriage is. Uh, some of you are married, and your marriage is crumbling, or you're at the, in the middle of a divorce, or you just got divorced, and you, again, might be wondering, why am I sitting through this? I don't want to. Some of you are single, whether maybe you've never been married, or you're a widow, and you're wondering, great, another sermon this month on marriage. Well, 2 Timothy 3.16 says that Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for all Christians. So there's going to be application for all of us in this room if we allow the Word of God to, to humble us. At the very least, we're going to have a better idea of what a passage of Scripture says and how we can better pray for people in our lives who we know need this truth. And this is, again, what I love about the Bible. It doesn't avoid the difficult. It doesn't talk about how marriage is just joyful and happy and have good times all the time because you all know that's not reality. The Bible is for real people. So we're going to have two points today. Two points. First point is uh, typically it's longer than the second, um, but we're going to get through a lot, of, a lot of depth here in this first point. First point is this, that your marriage belongs to the Lord. We're going to camp out here for a while. Your marriage belongs to the Lord. This passage makes it clear that a Christian who is married is called to also obey the Lord in their marriage. That God has boundaries or commands or guidelines or designs even for marriage. He's the one who's over your marriage. He's the one who created the idea of marriage. Right? You would not have your spouse. You would not have marriage unless the Lord gave it to you. So essentially, foundationally, your marriage fundamentally is not yours, but it's the Lord's which means he is the authority over it. Okay, that's the general principle. But now we're going to buckle up here because we're going to get into some of this complicated stuff. And if we don't do it now, I don't know if we ever are going to get to this. So I want to be faithful in looking at all of these, these details. In this passage, in these seven verses, uh, Paul gives three commands, kind of three principles 
to show that God is authority over your marriage, especially when it's difficult, especially when you want to get out of it. Gives three commands, and it's difficult to obey. But if you obey them to the best of your ability, you are recognizing that the Lord is in charge because following Jesus is not easy. At times, you're going to be asked to do something that you would selfishly not want to do. But if you believe that your marriage belongs to the Lord, then you will take your marching orders from the king. And these orders are not given by some curmudgeon God who yells, get off my lawn every morning. Right? God is good and full of grace and full of mercy, and he gives these orders for our good and his glory. Now, I want to show you these three commands in our text that show that God is over our marriage. And here's the first one. The first command overall is to not divorce. So hold your thoughts, your hesitations here. We'll get to them. But your first command here, Paul says, is to not divorce. This is found in verses 10 to 12. Read this again. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord, as in Jesus. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Paul says to the married and to both spouses, both the wives and the husbands, do not separate. Now the word separate here does not mean what it means today, right? Today we kind of have a period of you're married and you go to the stage of separation and then that leads to the stage of divorce. The word separation and divorce here in this passage are synonymous terms. They both mean you're ending the marriage. And Paul says in verse 10 that this charge or command to not get divorced comes from the Lord. That doesn't mean that what Paul says has less authority than Jesus, because it doesn't in the Bible. What this means is, Paul is saying, you already know this from the Lord. It's back in Mark chapter 10. When it says, not I, but the Lord, he's saying, you guys know from Mark 10 what Jesus said about divorce. Mark 10, 1 to 12. So Paul doesn't get into all the details and the, and the nuances here, because he's assuming the church already knows the Bible. But in Mark 10, to catch us up, Jesus was talking about marriage and divorce. He upheld marriage and said, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, and, where, and what God has joined together, let no man separate. So Jesus saying, when two people get married, it's not just them there, it is God joining them together. A marriage is a sacred ceremony, whether people know it or not. God created marriage, and God is behind the marriage of the man and the woman. And what God brings together, what God decrees, what God designs, no one should separate. Right? Have you ever had to glue something together? Right? You can maybe choose between glue or tape, but you know if I want this to stick together longer, you're going to avoid the tape and you're going to use the glue. Right? So imagine you have two pieces of wood. You grab your wood glue. You get these two pieces of wood together. You glue them, you clamp them together, and you let them sit for a while. The intention is that those pieces of wood will not separate, and if you need to try to pull them apart, most likely what's going to happen? Some damage to one of the pieces of wood. Right? This is God's overall intention with marriage. He is there as the glue and the clamps, and he's brought them together, joining people to, into one for all of life. So what God joins together, let no man separate. These are Jesus' words in Mark 10, but they're Jesus' commentary on Genesis 2. So Paul is saying just how the Lord Jesus said that marriage should be permanent because God is the one involved, stay with your, your spouse. So wife, 
Husband, stay with your spouse. Divorce doesn't just separate husband from wife, but it takes away the joining of God. God is there in the marriage. And what is marriage again? Marriage is a picture of God's love and commitment to us. God says when he's called us to himself, if you're a Christian and God has saved you, God has said to you, nothing can ever snatch you out of his hand. What God commits to, God follows through with, and marriage is supposed to be a tangible expression of that. So overall, Paul and Jesus are saying, Christian, don't get divorced. Your marriage belongs to the Lord. In sports, when an athlete doesn't get the ball, he can request a trade. That's not what a spouse should do when they don't get what they want out of marriage. Paul says, stay married even, even if you're disappointed right now. Seek out your spouse, pursue them, reconcile, get some help. Let that be your first instinct instead of quitting. Because in Corinth, it was so easy to get a divorce, and they were getting divorces like crazy. So common. It was a transaction. It was easy to accomplish, but Paul is saying, Christians, you need to go a little bit different, a go different than the grain here in the world, and let divorce be kind of your last option. Now, we did a sermon on Mark 10 a while ago, and you can go listen to that, but I do want to mention that just because God created marriage to be a lifetime commitment, and divorce is the opposite, that does not mean that God does not permit divorce. Right, this, if we just ended the sermon here, like it, we would all feel a sense of guilt and shame. Even after Jesus has this huge high calling of don't let anyone separate marriage, he says that if a spouse commits adultery against another spouse, he would permit a divorce. As in the victim, the, the innocent spouse, the partner, would be free to leave that spouse over the sin. And later in our 1 Corinthians text, you're going to see that Paul is allowing a Christian uh, to have a divorce if their spouse abandons them. And pastorally, right, we we would advise that if someone's safety is on the line in their marriage, they should be separate and probably divorce at some point if that's deeply seated and unchanging. If there's public egregious sin, we would maybe say, hey, maybe it'd be wise for you to get a divorce. There could be a spiritual abandonment, an emotional abandonment that goes on for years. So there's a lot of nuances here. So though marriage points to an eternal commitment of God to his people, we all realize that our earthly marriages can't fully live up to the heavenly marriage of God. And God knows that. God knows that some of you have been hurt, you've been cheated on, you've been abandoned and physically and verbally and emotionally abused. And if there's not ability to have your partner reconcile and repent to the Lord, sometimes the wisest option is a divorce. I want you to know that God is never standing against any one of you because of your divorce or if you are a product of divorce. God knows the sinfulness of humanity and how it even plagues families. So pastorally, if someone were to ask, hey, does God allow divorce? We would say in certain circumstances, yes, like the ones already mentioned, right? And if your spouse did something like abandon you, God is saying you do not need to feel the guilt over that. That's not on you, right? We as human beings, as individuals, are responsible for our own behavior. That's it. I would love to control people, (laughs) I would love to. 
You would love to control people, but we can't. And at times, that's what makes marriage sometimes with people a risk or relationships a risk because you have to trust the other person, and sometimes they abuse that trust. The good news, and this is not a cop-out answer, I mean this genuinely, that there is so much safety and security in Jesus and stability in Jesus, even when you don't get that safety and security and stability in someone else. But overall here, Paul is saying that marriage is to be a lifelong commitment between you and God. So divorce should be a last resort, but there are reasons why it would be maybe biblically wise to have a divorce. So I don't want you to feel guilt and shame here, people. God knew this, and he put this in his word. But overall, your marriage belongs to the Lord. So one of the ways we submit to God and show that our marriage belongs to him is by not seeking divorce. That's the first thing. The second command here that shows that God is the Lord over our marriage is this, that some of you should remain single after your divorce. Some of you should remain single after your divorce. Now, this is, this is a hard one. Paul says in verse 10 and 11, he says in verse 10, to the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord, the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. Paul, again, modeling his commands after Jesus in Mark 10, saying that if you got divorced for unbiblical reasons, you should remain unmarried. Now, this is, this is difficult and almost unheard of. Jesus says this in Mark. Paul says this here, that unless it's permitted biblically, those spouses should remain single. So I want to give you a, scenario, a couple of scenarios here so we can kind of picture this. If a husband cheats on his wife, the wife is free to divorce, and I believe the wife is free to remarry. The husband, however, is not. He's the guilty party, and he should strive for repentance and reconciliation with his wife. But if he's not willing to do that, or she says no, he should remain single. If a wife leaves her husband, not because there was adultery or anything, but just because... She outgrew the marriage or whatever. We would ask the husband to pursue that wife, but if she says no, we would say he would be free to not feel the guilt of that divorce. It would be on her, and she should not remarry, but he would be able to. Now often, this is where it gets hard, often many divorces happen, and we probably could not neatly fit them into one of these biblical categories of adultery or abandonment or abuse. Most likely, You know someone or you yourself have divorced someone for a reason like, well, we just fell out of love or we just didn't get along. Now, these aren't the biblical reasons of abandonment or abuse or adultery or some deeply serious sin. And Paul says that if a divorce is not biblically merited, then you should remain single afterwards because he says that marriage should still be intact Now, many of you might feel right now that this is just condemning you. Even from maybe a divorce that happened 30, 40, 50 years ago. Because maybe you can't fit your divorce into one of these categories, and yet now you're remarried. I want to say to you, you do not need to sit for the rest of your life in guilt and in shame over a divorce. I encourage you, if you haven't yet, and you realize Looking back, 
I wish maybe we would have pursued this in a way that pleased the Lord. Then what you should do is confess that to the Lord and let it be done. Any other sin, we would say the same thing to. Your sin or your divorce, whether it was right or wrong, does not need to define your life. Jesus doesn't want it to. And God's grace is covering you. If you've confessed it, God's grace is covering you. And also this means that if you are remarried, stay with your spouse. Don't divorce your spouse to go back to the other spouse. Pursue your spouse and know that, you know what, sometimes the Lord even brings blessing out of maybe bad decision-making or hard decision-making or messy. Sometimes, some of, sometimes you think now, like, I wasn't a Christian 30 years ago when this happened. There's a lot of reasons of maybe why the divorce happened, and I don't want you to go through them like a carousel in your mind of, I should have done this, I should have done that. No, bring it to the Lord and be done with it. The Lord loves to bring blessing out of all lives. And he loves to bring blessing out of divorces. I know some of you have found the Lord because of your second spouse. That doesn't mean you just brush your first divorce under the rug and act like it didn't happen. No, bring it to God. But God is so full of grace. And even when his design is maybe ignored or twisted, he still loves to bless, doesn't he? I think of David. Right? David committed adultery so clearly and blatantly and yet he is given forgiveness and then blessing. Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. And yet it says in Genesis 50, 20, what was done in evil, God brought good out of it. Friend, welcome to the gospel story. You have so much hope and welcome and blessing, even if there's a divorce in your life, and that divorce doesn't have to interrupt grace. But for those of you who who are divorced and not remarried, maybe if it's, for one of those, if it's not for one of those reasons of divorce, maybe God is calling you to remain single. And is that difficult? Absolutely. But if that divorce was not biblical, in the eyes of God, you should remain single to obey this passage. right? Unless that spouse completely abandons you or runs off to another marriage, then right now your position probably is to remain single. Singleness and celibacy would be your call, and maybe this is your nudge to seek reconciliation if you need to. So this is one of those costly, obedient acts of Christ. Right? Will you find enough joy and satisfaction in Jesus that you will let him give you the marching orders even regarding divorce and remarriage? So for those of you who feel like this is pointed at you, Maybe you feel shock or guilt or anger right now hearing this. I want to say this, that our, our church stands with Jesus in being full of truth and grace. And that, what that means is that we will not skip texts that are in our book that we're studying. We're going to say we've got to live this out, and yet we're going to be full of grace and mercy, a place of safety and refuge for all people, truth and grace, the Bible and safety. And if you do feel a sense of guilt or an awareness of maybe I've not obeyed this text in my life and in my past. You know what Jesus says to you? He says, come to me with that heavy burden and I will give you rest. Bring that heavy burden of sin or regret or guilt to Jesus. No matter what it is, nothing can separate you from the love of God. 
even our sin or the sin of someone else or the hurt of someone else or the baggage we bring, when we believe in Jesus, nothing can stand between us and Christ. Each one of us is in a different position this morning, especially in regards to this text. But I do want to say a few things about Jesus to us again. If you've been hurt in your marriage, Jesus sees it, and Jesus will never hurt you nor forsake you. It doesn't solve all of your issues right now, but Jesus is the faithful spouse forever. You may have hurt your spouse or brought pain to your home, but Jesus forgives you and brings your, your sin to be as white as snow. And you might have a past or you may have a present that you are not proud of, but guess what? In the past, Jesus died on a cross and he said it is finished and he will give you a new present and a new future in him. There is such hope and security and safety in Jesus because he died for our sins and he walked out of the tomb and so that you don't have to deal with your sin and the anger of God because Jesus did it for you and you can have new resurrected life. So your sins, your hurts, your tough family life, past decisions, regrets, whatever it is, they don't have to define you. The cross of Jesus should define you. And you may feel like you've been deeply hurt from a marriage, there's a messy divorce, you feel like a failure because your marriage failed, you feel thrown out or neglected. Jesus sees you and he will never leave you nor forsake you. And he doesn't just remain with you out of obligation. He stays with you because he delights in you, even if no one else does. You may feel guilty for past divorces. You may feel like this book, this sermon is condemning you. Guilt and shame might be rising up. The good news is that you don't have to be defined by guilt and shame if you are in Christ because guilt and shame don't clothe you. The righteousness of Jesus does. And this text is hard, and we'd rather avoid it or speak generally and just move on, but these are the words of Jesus and Paul, and this is the Jesus who loves us with all delight, and the Jesus who has given us righteousness to walk around in, and He is our King. So these are His words for our life, and even in the messiness of life, we bow down to Him. And before I move to the the third command here, you may have a situation in your life, in your past, or even your present, that you're like, I really don't know how to think about this biblically. Um, you're not sure if it fits in one of these categories, or maybe you're feeling a sense of guilt and shame. Or maybe you're thinking, I don't feel any guilt and shame, and should I? And there's all these questions you might have internally. And if you want wisdom, you want understanding, you want to talk this out in a safe way, please find an elder or a deacon or a staff member, and if that's even too public for you, you can go on our website, cbc.net, and you can find our emails to our, our leadership, and you can email people individually or the groups. We would love to care for you and shepherd you without any guilt or any shame. We, wanna, we can't hit every nuance and situation here, but if we can bring the Bible and we can bring the gospel to you in any way to listen to you, we would love to. Um, but the third command here that shows that God is in charge of our marriage is this, that if you are a believing spouse, 
you should remain with your unbelieving spouse. A believing spouse should remain with their unbelieving spouse. In verses 12 to 16, Paul mentions a scenario where a Christian is married to a non-Christian. First, the Bible makes clear that if you're a Christian and you're in a dating scene out there, you are not called to go seek out a non-Christian to marry. That's what Jesus calls to be unequally yoked. But let's say that you did that. Okay, it's in the past. Paul says, remain in that marriage. And there are many people who get married and then only one of the spouses comes to know Jesus. And Paul says, remain in that marriage. Some of the believers in Corinth here in the first century became Christians and they thought maybe the most holy thing I can do is divorce my unbelieving spouse. Because think about it, the Christian has one worldview and purpose and the non-Christian has another. And that might cause some issues in the home. Right? The Old Testament talked a lot about not allowing sinful or unclean things into your home because that might make you sinful and defile you. So these Corinthian believers are wondering, if I'm married to an unbeliever, is that going to make me sinful and unclean? And Paul says with authority, remain in this marriage. By being married to an unbeliever does not make you unholy or unclean or disobedient. Paul says, if your unbelieving spouse is willing to remain married to you, then stay. If he or she wants to initiate a divorce, let them divorce and don't cause harm from it. Verse 15 says, live with peace. Now, obviously, a Christian and a non-Christian living together might create some difficulties. There may be some moral differences, even schedule differences, right? The Sunday morning church, for example, different purposes in life. And maybe that spouse wants to separate But if that spouse wants to remain, then Christian remain because the Lord belongs there too. And there's several of you I know in this situation. And we want to say to you, thank you for being so faithful to the word of God that you remain with your spouse. You love your spouse despite the spiritual obstacles there. You are showing to us, you are showing to your spouse that you love the Lord so much. You are a servant of the Lord in such a unique way. So remain in that marriage, right? Unless there's a sense of those other things we've talked about. The abandonment, the adultery, the abuse. So to summarize this first point, I know it was a lot. Don't seek divorce. If you do seek divorce for an unbiblical reason, remain single or reconcile. And if You are married to an unbelieving spouse. Remain in that marriage if they will allow it. This is one of the ways. At CBC, we talk about loving God and loving people. This is one of those less flashy ways to love God. To let his word even rule over your marriage when it's complicated and it's messy. One of the ways you love God is obeying the word. But we're not the boss of our marriages. The Lord is. If you need grace, if you need help, if you need wisdom, please let us know. The other major point of the passage is this, number two. Your marriage blesses others. So stick it out because the Lord's asked you to, but also because your marriage blesses others as well. Your marriage belongs to God and now belongs to others. Now we're not going to spend a ton of time here, but if you thought this passage was already difficult, wait till this moment. 
Paul mentions that if you're married to an unbelieving spouse, you should remain in that marriage, and he gives reasons. And I'm going to summarize the reasons as this. Stay in that marriage because you will bless other people. Staying with that spouse, even if they're an unbeliever, brings spiritual blessings to those under your care. I want to read 13 to 16 again. I'll point out what's kind of mysterious. Verse 13, if any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. What does that mean? Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Paul mentions there are spiritual blessings to your spouse and your children. If you remain in that marriage, he ends by saying that maybe you will be the instrument that brings that unbelieving spouse to come to know the Lord. Now, there's a lot of mystery in this text, and I cannot fully explain what this means. I can explain what it doesn't mean. When Paul says that a believing wife makes her husband uh, uh, holy, that, that's strange because to be holy in the Bible means that you are set apart by God, sanctified, you are cleaned, you are saved, you are a Christian. If you are in Jesus, you have been made holy by Jesus. That is not what it means here. If, if what it means is if you marry an unbeliever, they automatically become a Christian, we would tell every single one of you, go marry a non-Christian, be a missionary. That'd be a great missionary movement. But that's not what it means because Paul clearly calls them unbelieving here. And in verse 16, he talks about the optimistic possibility that maybe that spouse might be saved. So this does not mean that if you are a Christian and you say and you marry a non-Christian, that you will automatically save and convert them. However, this does say, that your individual faith in some way make holy your spouse. I don't fully know what that means. So when you get to a point in your Bible reading and you don't know what something means, it is best to look at what the rest of the Bible says about that. Right? The best commentary you can have on your passage is the rest of the Bible. So looking at many passages, I still have curiosities, but I have some more wisdom. What this passage is saying what it means to make holy your spouse is that there is a unique favor of God on one's marriage and one's household when there's a believer present. There is a unique favor of God on your household if there's a Christian there. And I believe this to be the case because of other passages. For example, 1 Peter 3, 1-5 talks about how an unbelieving wife should act in front of her unbelieving husband. And it mentions that her husband might be one to the faith. So there's another passage that says, you might be the instrument that brings a non-believer in your home to faith, that God may infiltrate souls. Again, not guaranteed, but a possibility. But also I want to mention a few passages from Genesis here. Okay, Genesis chapter 15, chapter 17, and chapter 18. 15, 17, and 18. 
God in chapter 15 and 17 of Genesis is promising to father Abraham, you're going to get descendants, you're going to get land and blessing and power and riches. Say that to Abraham. And it's going to go from Abraham down the line to his descendants. And guess what? Some of Abraham's family and his descendants weren't Christians. And yet, they still received much of the favor and blessings given to Abraham the individual. And in Genesis 18, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, do you guys remember this story? God was going to destroy the city for its wickedness. But then God was willing to not destroy it and let them keep living if they could find righteous people there. As in, God is willing to hold back judgment and wrath and allow life to keep going on account of a righteous person. Or 1 Kings 15, God blesses future descendants of David because of David's faith. Your faith is never in a vacuum, people. Right? Have you ever name-dropped someone so that you can get a discount or get into a restaurant or something? Like, hey, I know so-and-so, and they say, oh yeah, come to the front of the line. That's what's going on here to agree. Because of one's association with the believer, God gives unique blessings to that household. With that in mind, consider our passage. Even though your spouse or your children may not believe in Jesus, they are going to reap the favor of God in some way in your home because of you. If you belong to God, there is some benefit to them. That is what this made holy language means. To be made holy as in set apart, as in there is a unique favor God has for your house. That does not mean your house will be safer or healthier or wealthier. But God has a special spiritual favor. If you are in Christ, you have the many spiritual blessings of Christ in you. If you are following Christ obediently, those blessings are going to flow out of your home. The fruit of the Spirit will be evident in your home. And gentleness and patience and self-control infiltrates. It's going to infect and influence and give grace to your house. So if you are the believing husband or wife, or the believing mom, or dad, or grandparent. Live out your faith before your family. Whether you've been married one year or 50, whether you uh, have kids that are one years old or 50 years old, live out your faith because Paul says in verse 16, faith may come because of you. So pray for your spouse, pray for your kids, your grandkids, all that are under your care, and you might be an instrument to their salvation. By living faithfully now, you are loving others, your household, right? You love people by loving God, especially in your home. So a couple little applications. Whether you are married to a believer or not, whether your kids are believers or not, so this is everybody here, read your Bible. And at times, not just for show, but does your family know you read your Bible? Do they see you reading your Bible? Live out that fruit of the Spirit, even when everyone else isn't in your home. The Lord is with you. And Paul is saying that by staying with that spouse and blessing that spouse with your faith, they may not see it, but God does, and God's favor is on your household because of your belief. I know some of you might feel spiritually alone in your home, but the Lord sees you, and He's going to bless your home because of your faith. Your friends your marriage, your relationship, your kids, they aren't just for you. They're also the Lord's and he's going to do something with it. And it goes even beyond your own home. Your grandkids 
okay? Or your great-grandkids or your great-great-great-great-grandkids may actually be impacted by your faith today. Have you ever thought about that? God is so full of grace that your faithfulness today might bring favor in the future. Your faithfulness today and you remaining in that marriage and loving Jesus well and loving your kids well might actually bring blessing to generations. That happened in Abraham's life. This reminds me of my grandma. She was married to a strong Christian man, but she lived out her faith so publicly so strong in prayer and so strong in kindness. If you grew up in a Christian home, there's probably someone in your household or your family line that you look back and say, yes, the faith of my grandma or the faith of my mom, right? She loved her Bible. She loved her church. And you know, without a doubt, who my grandma loved the most, that's Jesus. Not everyone in her home came to believe in Jesus. Not every grandkid, not every nephew or niece or cousin, not everyone became automatic Christians. But I cannot imagine what my family would look like right now without the faith of my grandma. How much disaster was avoided by the prayers of my grandma? We are blessed by her faith and now we have an example to follow. And I pray that we will jump on board and realize that our lives, our marriages, Our parenting, our jobs is not primarily ours, but it belongs to the Lord and God is going to entrust us to live faithfully even when it's difficult. We're not here for ourselves. It's not our time, it's the Lord's. We belong to Him and we're here for Him and through loving Him and obeying Him, we get to bless other people. So even your marriage is not about you. It's the Lord. So be faithful and stick it out. You can love God and you can love people even in your marriage. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask that uh, you will increase and we will decrease. Pray you will bring grace and healing to those who need it. Conviction and truth to those who need it. Lord, overall we ask you to be our king. That we will recognize you, submit to you, bow down to you. Thank you for your grace and your mercy and your love. May you be glorified in all that we do. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.